through Romans chapter 4. Let me say a great big thank you to Jim and Barb Reese because they're the ones who work tirelessly all through the weekend in putting these decorations together for us. So as a church family and... I happened to stop by briefly on Friday, and Barb was frustrated with this tree over here because only half of it was lit, and they're trying to figure out what bulb is burned out. She asked me to stay. I didn't, and it's lit. It's all lit. It's all lit. So she found that bulb. Um, so I have a strand of lights at my house. If you could come. <laughs> all right, there's an outline in your bulletin this morning, and we are again in uh, Romans chapter 4. We're going to try to cover this whole chapter. I may not read every single verse, but we are going to cover the content. And uh, Paul has spent uh, three chapters up to this point in making the same point over and over again, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, that there's none righteous, no, not one, that we are not part of the solution. We are, in fact, part of the problem. And even Jesus said it is out of the overflow of the heart that our, that our mouth speaks. And so the enemy is no longer out there. The enemy is in here. And because the enemy is in here, we have the ability to bring um, the fire of hell here on earth, even through the words that we speak. And so in the latter part of chapter 3, Paul said, listen, you can look at people's conversation, you can look at their conduct, you can look at their character, and I'm telling you, we're the problem. And even the book of James, James talks about the fact that our tongues are so powerful that life and death is found in the, in the tongue is so powerful, our conversation, that we can use our tongues to like light a, a forest fire that would like spread and just like destroy everything in its pathway. That's how, um, that's how evil our hearts can be at times, right? And then we say things and we do things that we wish we had never said or done. And so James reminds us that sometimes our our tongues are used for church. We're in here. We're lifting up praise to the Lord. And then come Monday morning, we're, we're spewing out curses towards those who are driving too slow in front of us. Right? So, so out of the same heart comes both cursing and praise. And, and James says, well, you know, it really shouldn't be that way. And so we're just reminded in Scripture that uh, as fallen human beings in our fallen state of being, that, that God not only wants to save us and bring us into relationship with him, but he also wants to develop the process of transforming our hearts and our lives into the image of Jesus. So we begin to speak more like Jesus. We begin to display the character of Christ through the fruit of the Spirit. We begin to conduct our lives in more Christ-like ways. And that's a lifelong process whereby God is, is transforming our lives. And so for me, my mission statement is I want to help people find forgiveness and freedom through faith in Jesus Christ. I want them to experience the healing of their soul and the transformation of the soul, the mind, will, and emotions so that we begin to reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ in all that we do. The good news is, uh, is that Jesus makes a way for grace. All right, last week we talked about God's amazing grace and how amazing it is as Paul you know, finished up chapter 3. And grace has the power to trump our behavior. And if grace trumps behavior, then the implications of that are quite radical. 
This is why you would see Jesus, I mean, he's hanging out with the, the lowlifes, right? And so he would be out there with the uh, tax collectors and the prodigals and the sinners. And he says, man, these folks are all going to be partying it up in my father's house while the, you know, the religious um, elite and those who felt like they qualified off their own credentials to be in a right relationship with God will find themselves outside of the kingdom. And so Jesus gives us hope, right? I don't know if you've ever looked at yourself in the mirror quite intently and allowed God to kind of like say, hey, uh, Lord, how do you see me? How, how do you see me? Not how do I see myself, but how do you see me? Like taking the word of God and holding up this mirror, as James says, that it begins to reflect back to us, God, what do you see? And, and if we truly do that on a day-by-day basis, sometimes God can unveil some pretty ugly stuff inside of us, Amen. Am I the only one? Amen. Thank you. I need company. Uh, <laughs> the criteria, the criteria for entering into this eternal joy of God's kingdom is found not in our resumes, but in his righteousness, not in our goodness, but in his grace, not in our qualifications, but in the healing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is on the basis of God's amazing grace, that undeserved gift of God's favor that we find through his son, Jesus Christ, and him alone. This is what sparked the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, who was a a, uh, you know, he was, he was a Catholic and he's, he's a priest and he's a monk and he's frustrated because he's trying to live the, the word of God. And he just said, man, this is, this is God, this isn't fair. You've given me stuff to follow. I can't possibly follow. Why would you frustrate us in such a way by giving us the law? And you know, we can't keep the law and it just makes us look bad. And, and that frustrated him. And then he came across and he says, oh, oh, oh. Oh, so it's salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, not Jesus plus something else, Jesus alone. And that is the spark that led to the Protestant Reformation that forever changed the course of Christianity. And so um, we receive this gift by faith. So the question is, what kind of faith saves us? And what does saving faith look like? And how do I know that I have experienced it? And one of the reasons why I bring this up is because Paul has already said that faith is so crucial to our salvation. And Romans 1.16, he says, the gospel is the power of God to everyone who what? Who believes. And 3.22, he says, there, there's a righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So how do I know whether or not I've actually and truly believed? Because here's what I've, I've discovered in 30-some years of pastoring. There are a lot of people out there who are so confused about what it means to be saved and how to be saved and what does that constitute, what does that look like, and even believers who've been trying to walk with Jesus for years Doubting their salvation, they've, they've been baptized three or four times. They've, they've, you know, every time they heard a new speaker who said, hey, if you've ever doubted your salvation, that's not from, uh, that's not from God, it's from Satan. You know, all these things and people get confused in their mind and, and then they feel bad and they come forward again and confessing their faith in Christ all over again. So the question is, if, if you know that you're saved by faith, 
how much faith does that take? And what does that mean? And what does that look like? And, and some people say, well, you know, I, I'm not sure I prayed the right prayer. Because sometimes we put so much emphasis on praying a prayer. They say, well, I didn't pray a prayer just like that one when I got saved. I don't know if I prayed the right prayer. And I don't know if I was sincere enough. And so, therefore, there's confusion and doubt in their heart. And what about the feelings of repentance? I mean, how repentant did I need to be? And what kind of feelings did I have to have? Because, you know, when I got saved, uh, when I got saved, my, one of my friends got saved at the same time. And he's like crying like a baby. And, and I'm not crying at all. And, and then later on, I thought, well, was I not repentant enough? And was there not enough sorrow in my heart? And But those of you who know me know that I'm not a real emotional guy. And so it takes a lot for me to cry. And I, I, I just didn't happen. It would trip me up like, man, was I repentant enough when I came to faith in Jesus? And, and so this confusion, and you know what Satan does with confusion. He drums on that confusion. And, you know, if it's about being committed to Jesus, well, how committed do I have to be? Uh, how much commitment is enough in order for me to experience this, this saving faith? And, and so Paul's choice of Abraham in this chapter is very intentional. Because he was viewed by the Jews as the father of our faith. And Paul's going to, in this chapter, say, let me show you what saving faith looks like. Let me display it for you through the father of faith. And therefore, you'll have a firmer grasp on what does this look like and, and what does it mean. So we're going to look at Abraham's faith as it was exhibited and explained and examined in this chapter. And you can't try to fill all this out, but we are, we're going to start with um, Abraham, it says, was justified by faith. And if he is the father of our faith who was justified by faith, we should be we should be also. So here's how I'm going to define faith on top of your outline. And it is this. Faith is not ignoring the facts about what God says about you. It's not ignoring the facts. It's like, well, I, I got to dress myself up, make myself look better in God's eyes. No, it's not ignoring the facts. It is trusting God in spite of the facts. All right. It's trusting God in spite of the facts. So when you came to faith in Jesus, I don't know, maybe you grew up in church, maybe you didn't grow up in church, I didn't grow up in church, I had very little knowledge about the Bible, well, I had no knowledge about the Bible, no knowledge of the gospel, but I've been attending church, I've been hearing and listening, and, and when God called me into that relationship with Christ, and I, I didn't know much, but I did know certain things. I knew that, man, my life was a wreck, that I could not undo what I've already done. I could not fix what needed to be fixed. And I, my future looked very insecure because I was heading down a road that was not leading to a very nice destination. And so I knew I needed Jesus and Jesus issued that call to me and the spirit of God drew me into that relationship. And I, I gave my life to Christ. Did I know all the facts about the Bible? Did I know everything there was? Absolutely not. But I knew that Jesus was the savior of the world. He came and died in my place and I put my faith and trust and hope in him and him alone. And there's the key alone. Sometimes we put our faith in Jesus plus a lot of other things. So let me so right out of the gate, Paul's going to say, let me show you what saving faith is not. Okay, let me show you what saving faith is not. So um, look at Abraham's faith exhibited in verses 1 through 15. He says in verse 1 of chapter 4, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? Well, remember, he is building off of what he's just concluded with 
In chapter 3, that man, there's a grace that is amazing. It comes through faith alone in Christ alone and what he's done on the cross on our behalf. And then when we receive Jesus, we remember we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It is a, it is a righteousness that is given to us. It is credited to us. And you're going to see that word credited multiple times in this chapter of chapter 4. If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him. There's that word credited to him as, as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who's, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David, now he's going to pull in another example. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is a man whose sin in the Lord will never count against him. And so saving faith is not, not doing good works. But this is the default of human beings. It is Jesus plus what I do. In the most recent um, surveys that have done, among non-Christians, just an average Americans, 72% believe that salvation involves what I do, my works. In the church, 54% also believe the same thing. Let me tell you, when you get to heaven, God's not going to ask you what you did to get there. He's going to ask you whether or not you trusted in what he'd already done through Jesus. There's not going to be a bragging session going on. Can you imagine what heaven would be like if we get there by our works? Well, how did you get here? Well, let me tell you what I did. Well, you think that? Oh. And then we'd be one-upping each other, and we get all braggadocious about everything. Do you know that bragging is the essence of pride, and pride is the one thing that God hates the most? We have nothing to be prideful in heaven. We are all there on the same basis, God's amazing grace in Jesus Christ alone. And aren't you glad it's that way? Man, I'll tell you what, I can't even measure up to my own standards, let alone measure up to God's. So this is what Paul has been hammering on. He says, look, we've, we've all fallen short of God's glory. What's God's glory? God's glory is perfection. And if it's here perfect, I know you might think you are. Look at the person next to you who knows you well and ask them, all right, am I perfect? No. <laughs> now, I'm close, but I'm, I'm not quite there. No, that, that's, not, that's not what it says. All have fallen short. God doesn't say, wow. You know, you're not going to get them. Do you know you when you get to heaven, you're not going to impress God? Like, wow, man, I, when I created you, man, whew, you were just like as close to Jesus as I could possibly get as a, possibly get as a prototype here. I, I, I'm, I'm telling you, you are the one. Amen. You see, God doesn't get impressed. You know, people might get impressed with what you do, but God doesn't get impressed with what you do. You want to know why? Because he knows your heart. He knows your motives. He knows what's beneath the surface, and it can get real ugly. And so Paul is referring here in verse 3 when he says, um, he says, but, but what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as, 
as righteousness. Now this, Paul is referring to an incident in Abraham's life that happened when he was 86 years old. Now when, when Abraham was 75, he was a citizen of Ur of Chaldea. It was a polytheistic uh, com- you know, nation, community, believed in multiple gods, and one of the uh, primary gods was the god of Nana, which is uh, the moon god. And so um, Abraham grew up purely pagan, right? Worshiping false gods. And God called him out of that um, circumstance and said, and made promises to him, right? In Genesis chapter 12, I'm, I'm going to make a, your name great. I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm, you're going to have descendants that nobody can count. And those who bless you, I will bless in return. Those who curse you, I will curse in return. And, and so he called him to follow him. And so Abraham begins following God. And, and so you know, years pass, and there's no son. There's no descendant. There's, God, I, I thought you promised us. Now, 75 years old, he starts the journey. Now he's 86 years old, still no promised son. And Abraham begins to waver a little bit in his faith, right? So as most of us would. I mean, a lot of time has gone by. And he's thinking, my goodness, you know, God, I'm 86 years old. And my wife's, she's not much younger than I am. How in the world are we going to have a child that's going to be a descendant through this nation? And so God shows up again. And God says, I want you to come outside. I want you to look at the stars in the sky. And I want you to, I want you to look at them closely because your descendants, man, your descendants won't even, you can't even number them. You can't even number the star. You can't even number your descendant. I mean, I'm telling you, it is going to be incredible. And it says, Abraham believed God and God, his belief in God's promise is what, what God credited Abraham with as righteousness. He believed God, his promise that God could do that And it was credited, it's a banking term, to his account as righteousness. And so then Abraham wrapped his life around that promise. I'm sure he he probably told Sarah, Sarah, you you need to go, we need to get a nursery ready. You need to go out and start looking for baby clothes. I mean, we're telling we're going to have a son. But it didn't happen that quickly, did it? And so when it says that Abraham believed God, that word believe means amen or amen or I agree with you, Lord. I believe it. I agree. What you have said is right and it's going to come to pass and I'm putting the full weight of my trust in your word. This is what it means to be saved. I agree, Father, I have sinned, I've fallen short of your glory, there's nothing righteous in me on my own, I believe Jesus came to the world, he was my substitute, he died in my place, that I can be clothed in his righteousness by putting my faith and trust in him, and he secured his authenticity through his resurrection, and so I'm putting the full weight of my hope and my life, my eternity, everything I am, and I will build my life around and stake my life on the fact that Jesus is who he says he is, and he's accomplished what he's said he would accomplish. I'm trusting in him alone. That's saving faith. I didn't add anything else. It wasn't that plus, you know, these 36 other things that I might do. I'm not pulling out my resume. Well, you know, God, I did these good things and I did these good things over here. That's not the basis of my salvation, not the basis of your salvation, not the basis of saving faith. So here's Abraham standing before God, spiritually bankrupt. And as soon as he said, amen, and trusted God, the accounts changed. God took 
his righteousness and credits it to his account. And he didn't say, I'm crediting my righteousness to your account, plus you need to do these 36 other things. That word credited is the Greek word logozima, and it, it, it means that I'm, 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 I'm putting something to your account that wasn't there before. For example, when I die, my wife die, and we leave an inheritance to our kids, and that inheritance is credited to their individual accounts, right? Everything we own, everything we possess is credited to their accounts, and so their accounts are going to go up by at least $500, I'm sure, and, and I'm spending my inheritance. I, I don't know about you, but... It's, it's, so this is what the banking term is. It's, it's, it's God's crediting something to you that you did not earn, you didn't work for. It is an act of his grace because you channeled your faith in the object of Jesus. Abraham looked forward to the coming Messiah. We look back to the Messiah who has come. So old, new, we're saved the same way. It's in Jesus and Jesus alone. And the only thing God received from Abraham was an imperfect faith. But by his divine grace and mercy, he credited it to Abraham's spiritual account of, of righteousness. And then in verse 4, what he says, Well, now then, now when a man works, his wages are not credited him as a gift, but as an obligation. And all he's saying is, and this is the promise behind every job. You perform your job, you get paid, Right? <laughs> So when you get your paycheck, does your boss come up to you and, um, or you say, do you say to your boss, he owes you money, right? You, you have worked, you have earned a wage, he owes you the money. Do you say, oh, boss, how gracious you are to pay me this week. I am so thankful that you decided to pay me this week. This is such a wonderful thing. You're such a cool dude. I mean, I'm just so great. No, you earned it. it he is obligated to pay you. And so this is the debt-to-debtor debt relationship that we set up. And we try to set that up with God. Like, God, you know, I've done these things. You are in my debt. You owe me salvation. You owe me heaven. You owe me a right relationship. You owe me this, that, or the other. That's not the kind of relationship we have with our Heavenly Father. It's based on God's love and immersed in his grace. And so God's not giving it because we earned it. He's giving it because... He loves us, and um, this is the problem. So here on your outline, work, work is about earning and deserving. Grace is about believing and receiving. You see the difference? Salvation is wrapped up in grace. I believe in whom? Christ. Therefore, I receive what Christ is crediting to my account his righteousness. I am now, in God's eyes, justified, just as if I have never sinned, period. Cast as far as east from west, plunge beneath the sea of forgetfulness. It's not that God can't remember. He doesn't, you know, put on holy amnesia. But you're making a transfer of trust. I like what Tim uh, Keller, he calls it a trust transfer. You no longer depend on what you've done, your work to get to heaven, but on what Jesus has done for you and on behalf of you. Billy Graham was asked right before he died this question, why do you think God will let you into heaven? Here's what he said. I won't be in heaven because I preach to large crowds or because I've tried to live a good life. I will be in heaven for one reason, 
Many years ago, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross to make, to make my forgiveness possible and rose again from the dead to give me eternal life. And so then he pulls out an example with David, right? We all remember what David did with Bathsheba. This guy was absolutely um, sin, man. I mean, sin to the nth degree, worst nightmare. Bathsheba's pregnant. He has Uriah killed. He tries to hide it for a year. If you read Psalm 32, you'll read what David's going through during that year process. He's wasting away. He's depressed. He's wasting away in his bones. He's losing weight. He's trying to hide, trying to cover up until Nathan confronts him, brings it out in the open. You can read about his great confession in Psalm 51. And, and so David comes clean with God. And so what did, what did God do? David deserved death and someone else is going to be charged, right? Credited with it so that David could be credited with Jesus's righteousness. So this was a scandalous um, example of for God's forgiveness towards us. Did David, did David deserve to be forgiven what he had done? No, he didn't. It was God's grace that provided forgiveness. Do we deserve? Do we earn? Do we work for? No. So listen, if you base them, I've said this many times, the minute you bring works into to the table of grace, you eradicate grace, right? So it's grace, by grace you have been saved through faith, not that of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is Christ in Christ alone. Let me tell you, when you bring your works into the issue, you never know when you've worked enough. How do you know? Who keeps track? Who set up that, that whole economy? Well, I mean, do I get certain points for doing certain things? Do I lose points for doing other certain things? And who's keeping track of all this? And why would not God give me a midterm exam to see how well I'm doing before I leave this world? So it's just not in the Bible. It is grace. It's grace. So neither is saving faith following religious rituals. He goes into verse 9. Is, is it this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? So Paul's asking the question, listen, uh, who are the uncircumcised Gentiles? So do only the Jews get this favor of God or is this available for all of us? Well, what did he say back about in Romans 1.16 about the power of the gospel? It's for Jews and Gentiles, right? So he's going he's to flesh this out. And he says, we have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe that have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be, here's that word again, credited to him. And he also is the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So let's just untangle that for a moment. You know, circumcision was extremely important to the Jewish nation. It was a sign of the covenant that God has established between himself and the nation of Israel. And they would say, no matter who your parents are, man, if you're not circumcised, you're not a legitimate Jew. I just said, bottom line, 
So Paul is pulling out something that is extremely important to his readers. And they want to know, hey, does this grace, does this extend to everybody or is it just for us? Because we're the circumcised, we're the special group, we're the chosen nation. And um, many believe, Jews believe, that salvation was based on their obedience to God and being circumcised. Not circumcised, no saving faith, not a part of the covenant. It was they, their security, security eternally rested in that ritual of being circumcised. They thought that this ritual was a passport to heaven, and man, you're already there. And Paul says, no, you're in error for two reasons, and here's why. God declared Abraham righteous in Genesis 15, 6. Abraham, okay, Abraham is um, 86 years old. Abraham wasn't circumcised till Genesis 15 at age 99. So he was already credited with righteousness long before he partook in the ritual of circumcision. That's the first problem. And so Abraham had been declared righteous. Therefore, you can't say that circumcision is necessary for salvation because Abraham was saved before even God even gave the law. Uh, and so Paul explains this. The law is to teach us more about God and to show us how far short we fall of God, not to make us right with God. And so the second thing is, um, there were no Jews at that time. Abraham was declared righteous. He was an uncircumcised Gentile at that time. So the whole point that Paul is trying to make is there's no ritual that I can do that guarantees me entrance into heaven. And so people put trust in rituals all the time. But I was confirmed when I was a child. I was sprinkled when I was a child. But I was baptized. But I joined a church. But I signed a card. I prayed a prayer. You can do all kinds of things and still not have participated in saving faith. Those things do not save you in and of themselves. Jesus is the only one who saves you in and of himself. My faith is not channeled to rituals. My faith is channeled to Christ. It's not the issue of the how much faith I have. The issue is the object of the faith that I'm putting it in. And the object is always Jesus. It's not my rituals. It's not what, listen, I was, I, so I, I, I was too small. I don't know. My, I did not grow up in a Christian home. The only Christian in my family that I knew of was my grandmother. And so evidently I was christened when I was a small baby in, in a Methodist church. I mean, they gave me the thing they put on me. It looked like a white dress. Uh, and my grandmother gave that to me. And so, you know, now I, I could have like put my hope and trust in that. Man, I, mean, I was christened in the Methodist church. I'm in, right? I, I, I've, I've done the thing. I've been confirmed by the church. And Paul is saying, this is not the essence of saving faith. If, if that's what you're trusting in, you're putting your hope and trust in the wrong thing. Baptism is important, but baptism doesn't save you. Church membership's important, but it doesn't save you. Praying a prayer is important, but it doesn't save you. It's Jesus who saves you. The praying of the prayer is just simply expressing to the best of your ability that you want Jesus to be Savior and Lord of your life. I don't even remember the prayer that I prayed that morning that I gave my life to Jesus. But I used to get tripped up when I was a young believer because people come along I and mean, evangelists will come along and say, you didn't pray this prayer, you're not saved. 
Uh, I'm like, that's not the one I prayed. I don't. I'll pray it again. I'll pray to get my hands up. And then he says, it's not about keeping the law. He says, law, keeping the law, it was, it's not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise, right? That, that though he, he, he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Remember, faith always requires an object. What's the object of our faith? Jesus. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath and there's there's no law, there is no trans, where there's no law, there's no transgressions. In other words, if, if I don't know, listen, if, I, if, I, if we didn't have the word of God to show us how bad we were, we'd never know how bad we are. Because the only thing we could do is compare ourselves to other people. But when the word of God becomes the plumb line and God says, here's what righteousness, true righteousness looks like. Here, here's what, and we like, man, I, I, I don't live up to that. I don't, I'm falling way short of that. You're right. And so it's to make us aware of how far we have, sh- we have fallen. And so the law wasn't given till 430 years after Abraham. So the law had nothing to do with he being credited with righteousness, had everything to do with the object of his faith, which was the promise of God that the coming Messiah who would one day stand in our place as our substitute in order for us to be saved. It's Jesus Remember, the law can only reveal sin. It cannot remove it. So Abraham's faith is then explained in verses 16 and 17. And it says that, therefore the promise comes by faith, so it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom we He believed the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they they were. And so Paul's principle here is what is in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Now, this is where people get tripped up because somewhere in your Bible study, you're going to come across James chapter 2. And it's going to look like James is speaking the exact opposite of what Paul says here. Well, that's not what James says. He says, then, if you can't show me your works, you've not really been saved. And you... So I want you to turn to James chapter 2. I want you to look at what he said, and let me help you sift that out very briefly. Um, and so James is writing, Paul and James are, are writing about two different things here. All right, you need to keep that in mind. So here's what it says in James 2, 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes, daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, uh, and be well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You foolish man, do you not... Do do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he he did. Now, let me separate this for you. Paul 
is talking about saving faith. James is talking about growing faith, not saving faith. Two different things. Paul is talking about the root of salvation. James is talking about the fruit of salvation. That when you truly put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, things start to change. Your life begins to evolve in that God is changing you from the inside out. And so this is what James is talking about. In Romans 4, he, he could just accept the promise of a son. James talks about an event offering up Isaac that happened 35 years after that. And so what, what James is saying is, listen, because there was a, an, an authentic root of salvation in the heart and the life of Abraham, that root began to grow and sprout and produce fruit. And God took Abraham through a series of tests. And the ultimate test was that he would offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice to the living God. And you'll remember what Abraham said. He says, listen, uh, God will supply. He's going to provide the sacrifice. Let's go, Isaac. Isaac says, but where's the sacrifice? God's going to supply it. He knew in his heart, if you look at Hebrews, that even if God required him to take the life of his son, that God would resurrect him from the dead, even though he had never seen a physical resurrection in his life. He believed that firmly in the promise of God. This is the promised son through whom the Messiah, a nation will be birthed and a Messiah will come who will be the savior of the world. And so Abraham became the prototype, the poster child of salvation by faith that everyone who believes can simply trace their, their lineage back to, to Abraham. And so in verse 16, that grace means, again, on God's unmerited favor, his undeserved kindness, his sheer generosity. And so James says, man, there's an example of faith. It's not that faith is the opposite of work. Faith is faith, we, we demonstrate it by works. We've been saved, as, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, you know, we've, we've been created unto God by, for good works. It's the fruit of the root of our salvation. So here's what I put in your outline. Saving faith is a relationship of trust and reliance. Trust and reliance. And then Abraham's faith is examined. I'm just going to hit these very briefly, so what kind of faith does save us? And so uh, in the remaining verses, uh, we're not going to read all of these, but uh, as we examine Abraham's faith, uh, again, he's, you know, he's, he's been walking with the Lord a long time, and, and the kind of faith that saves us is the faith that believes that God can do anything, right? That God can do anything. This is the essence of Abraham's faith. As it is written, he says in verse 17, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they, they were. Against all hope, Abraham and hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it's been said. God, listen, <laughs> Abraham, um, he didn't just believe in God in general, Right? You're not saved by just believing, oh, I just, I just believe God. Yeah, I believe God and Jesus out there. No, very specific. He believed in the specific um, demonstration of God's power in his life, and he had the kind of faith that believed that God could do anything. I mean, he's in a situation where, listen, <laughs> he ain't got no kids. 
He's 86 years old. He's having a conversation with God. Sarah overheard that conversation that God was having with Abraham. She just laughed like, eh, this can't happen. And now when he's 99 years old, still no child, but now all of a sudden Sarah becomes pregnant. By the time Abraham's 100 years old, there is the promised son, Isaac. And so as far as Abraham was concerned and Sarah was concerned, they they were as good as dead. Like their bodies were in no way, shape, or form capable of bringing about a child. But Abraham never stopped believing that God would do what he said he was going to do. And he wrapped his life around that. Now, you and I, we have a problem sometimes um, believing God that God can do anything, right? We are confronted with something like Abraham is confronted with. What is the first thing we do? We got to try to figure this out. We got to figure a way out of this. We got to figure out how we're going to get this done. We're going to. And Abraham even succumbed to that later on after time with Hagar and Ishmael was born and that whole story. Um, but by and large, he, he trusted God to do the impossible because impossible is not in God's vocabulary, it's only in ours. And so Abraham, faith is believing that God will do what he said he would do and adjusting your life to that. Number two, the kind of faith that believes circumstances aren't everything. Circumstances are not everything. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body is as good as dead since he was 100 years old and Sarah's womb was also dead. Now, I, I, when I first read this, I like, without weakening in his faith, hey God, have you read the Bible that you wrote? Do you remember two times that Abraham tried to pass his wife Sarah off as his sister? Because he was fearful of what Pharaoh and then Abimelech would do if he found out she was his wife. Uh, a little wavering of faith going on. What does Paul mean by this? Did, did, do people in the scripture waver in their faith who are great saints of God? Absolutely they do. Think about Peter. I mean, Peter wavered a lot in his faith. He would be walking on water, denying Christ three times. I mean, a lot of times he, he wavered in his faith. So what is he talking about here? If this promise were made to us, and um, it's like, man, uh, how do I not waver? How do my, I, I take comfort in the fact that faith, sometimes our faith falters, but it doesn't mess up God. Your faith ever faltered? Like you succumbed to the timeline that was being pressed down upon you? The rent's due, the mortgage payment's due, the funds aren't there. I'm trying to trust God, and I lost my job, and I'm trying to trust Lord. And um, like Abraham, you think your past failures have to define your future, but they don't. And so many times we hedge on our faith when it comes to our walk and our relationship with God. This is why Abraham, even though his faith would falter at times, he was secure in the source of his faith, which is why he said, God will supply the sacrifice. Be secure in the source of your faith. It might waver, it may falter some, but the source is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Number three, the kind of faith that believes challenges are nothing, that challenges are nothing. It says in verse 20, he, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. 
but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. I, I love that. Notice, I mean, he, he just was willing to trust. And he's going to trust and he's going to trust even though sometimes he was shaky. And here's number four is the kind of faith that believes promises mean something. And so it says, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised, he was going to anchor his hope and his trust in him and him alone. Faith calls attention to God's character. Hebrews 12.2 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Abraham never denied his problem. He just chose to trust in the source that could overcome his problem. And that's why he was credited with the righteousness of Christ. It's faith channeled in the correct object, who's Jesus. So what's the end result of all this? He says the end result is, in verses 21 and 22 and 22, it says, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not from him alone, but also for those to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to, to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And so it is the resurrection is the proof that God accepted Jesus' payment for our sins. And it's our saying, I believe that it worked. And so, here's what Paul sums up. Saving faith is Jesus plus nothing. It's all Christ. My faith, my hope, my trust is in him and him alone because it's through Christ that I am clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, that I'm justified before a holy God, that I'm made acceptable in his sight, that I am secure in my eternal salvation because Jesus became the sacrificial lamb who stood in my place and died my death and authenticated God's acceptance of his death as justifying his wrath against sin by resurrecting him from the grave. This is why you don't have to worry, fret, fear, wring your hands over whether or not you have saving faith. The question always is, what and whom are you putting your hope and trust in? There's only one answer. If God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? Jesus. That's it. It's all I got. Jesus. I put my hope, faith, trust in Jesus. I'm trusting in him for everything. And God says, welcome home, my child. Welcome home. Let's pray.